This is the current federal tax developments for the week of August the 23rd, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers coming to you again this week from Phoenix, Arizona. We're going to be looking at one development and then I want to cover a topic because it's been a very, very quiet week. So what I want to do is spend this week looking at a topic that has been impacting us, and it's a topic that impacts federal returns, but it's being driven by state legislatures. So I want to talk about it in general so you understand the concept, not so much going to the detail of specific state laws, but rather understanding the basics so you can apply it, because I found a lot of confusion out there from people, even in states that have adopted one, having no idea why we're doing it, or what the point is, or even how it's supposed to work. So let's talk about them generally. So the first, the case we'll look at this year actually, or this week I should say, we'll review Section 1244 stock. That's a topic we don't see much of these days, but we'll talk about how it works. Again, C-corporations may make more sense these days because this is primarily a C-corporation issue for the shareholder of the C-corp. We'll talk about what happens, how 1244 stock works, and then specifically what the problem was for the taxpayer in this case. And then I want to spend most of this week discussing a comprehensive look at entity-level taxes that are meant to work around the state and local tax cap for deduction of $10,000 on Schedule A. More and more states have been adding this since the IRS blessed the arrangement last November. So we're going to talk about basically how these arrangements work, why we want to elect to do them, because most, all except for one of them, only happens if the entity, the pastor entity, elects to fall under this rule. But we'll talk about why you quite often would want to make this election, but also some of the pitfalls that we may run into with these elections. So we'll take a look at that from that perspective. So let's go ahead and take a look at our one case this week. This is a case of Ushio versus Commissioner. This was a tax court summary opinion that came down on August the 16th. Now, if you've never been around this thing, let's talk about 1244 stock. 1244 is a section that goes back a long way in the Internal Revenue Code. The idea was to encourage people to invest in small operating corporations by allowing them to claim a deduction if they're single of $50,000 or if married $100,000 for a loss that is incurred after investing money into the C corporation. And it turns out it doesn't work so well. And so when you dispose of that stock, you end up incurring a loss. And instead of that being a capital loss, that has to be recovered $3,000 per year if you don't have other capital gains to go against it. We're going to give you a full ordinary loss deduction up to that $50,000 or $100,000 limit. Now, there are a couple of caveats for something to be 1244 stock. In general, it has to be at the time the stock was issued, the corporation has to be something called a small business corporation. Now, a small business corporation is a corporation whose aggregate amount of money and other property that's received by this corporation for stock as a contribution of capital and is paid in capital surplus does not exceed $1 million. And it's made as of the time of the issuance of stock in question, but it does include whatever your taxpayer paid for that stock. So if, let's say, we're starting up a company and we go out and get a few investors and they each put in $50,000, we have 10 investors, that's $500,000 worth of value. So they would all qualify if we otherwise qualify for that to be 1244 stocks. So if our venture fails and they never see another dime of their money back, they would at least be able to claim that as an ordinary loss. Now, the stock does have to be issued directly by the corporation to the individual who's going to claim, who's going to try later on be eligible to claim such a loss, it has to be exchanged for money or other property other than stock and securities. And the corporation, during the five most recent taxable years ending before the date that the loss is incurred, 
um, you know, derive more than 50% of its aggregate gross receipts from sources other than royalties, rents, dividends, interest, annuities, and sales or exchanges of stocks and securities. Basically meaning we want an operating corporation, not a corporation that's basically running with investment style assets. So we have to have something, let's say, like a manufacturing concern, maybe a concern that is developing some product, but something that's truly operating in this case. We're looking for gross receipts from there instead of gross receipts coming to us primarily from our investment assets. And obviously, we generally need to have a bit of gross receipts to make that happen. So let's talk about what happened in this case. The taxpayer in this case invested $50,000 into a corporation. Uh, which is called PCHG, and that corporation never had gross receipts and ceased doing business about three years after it started and was administratively dissolved by the state of South Carolina in the fourth year in 2013. So it essentially you know, ceased doing business in 2012 and was administratively dissolved in 13. So it was around and disappeared. Now, it had planned in investing in LifeGrid Solutions, LLC. And LifeGrid was going to be, uh, supposedly, developing, you know, wanted to obtain the right to use a D4 process in its own projects for alternative energy. And what was going to happen here was that, that LLC, this corporation, and the entity they're trying to license it from, Lifetime Solutions, were to participate, develop, and conduct business related to alternative and renewable energies using a D4 energy group technology and processes on an exclusive basis. Of course, in the end, this just didn't pan out at all. So the money went in to the corporation. The corporation put the money in uh, to this LLC, and things just didn't go through. So the issue being, now we've got that never had any gross receipts, never really got anything done. When this company failed, the taxpayer attempted to claim his $50,000 investment as an ordinary loss rather than a capital loss. There's no question he lost 50 grand. We also know it was 50 grand. So that's not an open question either. The question is, is this a $50,000 long-term capital loss or is it a $50,000 ordinary loss? In this case, the court came back and said, uh, we think this is not 1244. As was noted, the purpose of 1244 was to encourage investments in an operating business. As well, it had to be a small operating business. And the court found there were two failures here. First, the court points out, it never seems that this company actually ever got operations going. Never had gross receipts. Um, the court doesn't try to deal with whether zero is more than 50% of zero. And if rents are zero or more than 50% of zero, I mean, you know, in essence, the court essentially concluded that no gross receipts was a really, really bad thing in this situation. So they never really became operational. They were more investment purposes, and obviously things just didn't go forward. But secondly, they said the other problem was to justify 1244 treatment, the taxpayer, meaning the individual, who's going to claim, try to claim 1244 treatment absolutely has to establish how much cash and securities in value had been invested in the company, had been given to the company for stock, along with the amount they put in to show that that total was less than a million dollars. And the taxpayer has never offered any evidence that showed how much in total this company had received for stock over the years or how much it had received at least by the time it received their money of 50000 So the court found for both of those reasons, the taxpayer had failed to carry their burden. They'd failed to show it was an operating company and they had failed to show that it had fewer than a million dollars or less than a million dollars that was invested, this company ceased to be a 1240. This company didn't qualify for 1244 treatment, the loss on it, or at least the taxpayer couldn't establish it. Now, we don't see 1244 theoretically applies to S corporations. And I say theoretically because it only applies to the basis that was the initial investment. And remember, it's got to be a loss. 
And in many cases, the only way it might come up is if you sold your stock, you still had basis from the original investment left in it, and you sold it for less than that remaining basis, which is not normally going to be the case. If an S corporation normally has burned through all the investment and it was a startup operation, generally the individual has received that much out as losses, you know, ordinary losses on the return from the business. So generally there's no basis to take against it. So I say it's very rare. And the thing to remember with S is it doesn't count if you have added the basis or you ate through the whole 50 and then your basis got restored by having income later, that later income is not eligible for 1244 treatment because you're only your basis from the original purchase can qualify for 1244. That said, because C corporations have become slightly more attractive, I'm not saying they're overly attractive, but small C's are a bit more attractive these days, especially if one's going for small business stock with that exclusion of up to 10 million of gain. Well, if you're going for that, then, quite honestly, you know, you may end up a 1244 situation if it loses money because that would be a C-Corp. So that's kind of the trade-off there when we look at that whole issue here of having small business stock that can qualify for full exclusion. We may have, in that case, probably 1244 stock as well that we could get the ordinary loss on coming back out of. So, you know, keep that in mind when we look at that and how it goes forward. Okay, as I said this week, I wanted to spend some time on a more general topic. Yes, we covered it in November, roughly, when the IRS issued the notice. But we have a little more information about these taxes. And because this week, literally almost nothing happened. The case I just mentioned, there was another case that dealt with the issue of, you know, can you have, can a treaty allow the foreign tax, allow an, allow an offset of foreign taxes against the tax for the net investment income tax been decided a long time ago you couldn't do that under the IRC itself but could a treaty cover it with the language and I believe they're talking about the U.S. Canada treaty in that case that answer was no that's a little specialized a little more specialized than we normally get into here but aside from those we know we had the IRS warning about ID theft this week and you know and there was some announcements about yeah we're going to try to do a few more things about that child tax credit portal uh, yeah, it'll be perfectly working come January when we won't need it anymore. But, you know, but aside from that, really nothing happens. So what we're going to talk about this week are these issues of the pass-through entity taxes. Now, these state-level pass-through entity taxes, they're entity-level taxes on pass-throughs. And specifically, I'm talking about here S-corporations and partnerships. No, none of these to date have covered sole proprietors. Even it doesn't matter if they're a single member LLC or not, it doesn't cover them. Now, if they're a single member LLC that has elected to be an S Corp, they're covered, but the others generally aren't. And that's because to be totally honest, the IRS notice that got this going also does not ever say anything about a sole proprietorship because nobody had covered them. So no state yet has gone out that direction to see if they can make this work. The concept here is relatively simple. As you're aware, part of the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at the end of 2017 was to impose a cap of $10,000 on the deduction on Schedule A for state and local income taxes and for other property taxes. However, there was a caveat that that tax limitation does not apply to taxes on a trade or business, nor does it apply to 212 activities, taxes on a 212 activity. These particular, these particular laws are looking to attempt to convert the tax on the pass-through income into a tax on the entity for which they will argue that this now represents a trade or business tax or at least a Section 212 tax, either of which, well, the trader business would be above the line, presuming it doesn't relate to your work as an employee, and if it does that, then it's really not deductible anywhere, um, or it relates to a rental 
which would be above the line. Rentals and royalties are above the line, even when they're 212 activities and not trade or business. If it's a 212 activity other than that, then it's a little more interesting how these would work. My own take is they probably work, but we'll find out more when the IRS gives us the promise regulations we'll talk about here in just a second. But I would suspect they would be an other tax on Schedule A, not subject to the 10000 cap, but will be part of itemized deductions, which is less favorable than above the line. But for the most part, people are talking about here operating companies and being able to take that pass-through tax and apply it above the line, either on Schedule E or as an other deduction item. And we're still kind of getting to which way is a better way to report that. So for, actually, I shouldn't say that. We do know it is Schedule E. In this case, I was thinking about another problem I was teaching this week. Uh, but this one would be netted on Schedule E normally. The IRS got this all running back in November when they issued Notice 202075. We covered this in the middle of November last year when the IRS issued this notice. Now, this notice was issued specifically to cover the state level entity, the state taxes that are imposed on the pass-through entity. The first one of these was found in Connecticut right at the end of 2017, early 2018. Connecticut put this into the law. I was actually teaching uh, update courses in Connecticut at the time, and we had that nice discussion as to where the, what was going to happen with this Connecticut pass-through tax. And the catch was the IRS, when Connecticut passed it, initially criticized it at the same time they were criticizing those tax credits for contributions to charities that were very closely related to the government for which you'd get an equivalent credit. And the IRS said that both of them were blatant workarounds of the SALT cap, and they were going to shut them down. Now, the IRS did very quickly come out, and it, you know, it, it happened very rapidly to shut down the tax credits, including the tax credits that pre-existed. Uh, this that had been allowed before, uh, the IRS now said under the new law, it was a different game, so it doesn't matter if you give it to a charity that's going to you know, basically relieve some of the work of the state, or if you give it to any other charity and get an offset of more than 15% of what you gave for state income taxes, we're going to treat this as a quid pro quo contribution. That was pretty clear. In fact, a lot of people I know, even some of those here in Arizona, uh, you know, had thought for years that, yeah, we knew the IRS allowed it under an old chief counsel advice for Arizona's contributions. Arizona is very generous in this regard, shall we say. Uh, we have a bunch of tax credits that you get a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction of your state income tax if you give your money to the charity, essentially allowing you to divert money out of the general fund and into supporting various other things. Uh, the most popular one and the largest in terms of the amount of money you could give in a year will generally go to private school tuition organizations, but we have others, and so Arizona had a bunch of these. IRS said, essentially, that, well, that's great, but that's not a charitable contribution. That's really a payment of state income taxes, and so it's going to be subject to the ten grand cap along with your other tax payments. That's not quite how it's worded, but it's effectively how the reg works. But they stayed very, very silent on this workaround and other states began adding Connecticut style workarounds so that we saw various states um, you know we, we saw you know a, a number of East Coast states did it but what was interesting was that just before he left office former Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin championed one of these programs getting it through the then Republican-controlled, I think still today, Republican-controlled state legislature. Now, that was interesting because up until the Wisconsin program, this had been something blue states had been doing to get around the salt cap. As you're kind of aware, uh, a lot of East Coast blue states were not happy with the $10,000 salt cap, and so there was a lot of fighting over that. But this suddenly gave a green light in a red state, that they were also voting to blatantly get around the salt cap. And they were followed shortly thereafter by Oklahoma. 
So what's happened here is we got this snowball effect of states, and suddenly the and the IRS staying quiet, and they were staying quiet. I thought very clearly because even though I thought they could shut down every one of these as they were structured, the minute they did so, they would put a roadmap out for exactly how to restructure these to make them work. So IRS last November decided they were not going to try to play whack-a-mole with these programs only to lose in the end. So what they said was, we are going to issue regulations that in general will allow a program that works like we described to create a deduction that offsets incomes, non-separately stated items, income, that is usually the one-line item that goes on Schedule E for net income. We're going to let them offset that number. And then we're going to allow you to find, you can do that. We'll give that deduction. That's no problem. It was limited to S corporations and partnerships. And yeah, we know you're giving a tax credit exactly equal to that amount or very, very close to that amount, or you're allowing an exclusion from income. If they're saying, we don't care. We also know some of them are voluntary. That doesn't have a problem for us anyway. It could be a voluntary tax. We're still going to let it go and let the deduction be incurred and be deducted. So the IRS gave us open season. This created an incentive for a lot of states to start adding it this session. We have seen a whole number. And even in like the, you know, the last month, we have seen, well, we probably have seen four states, I think at this point, do it. One, I'm still not sure if it ever got signed or just passed into law because the governor didn't do anything about it. Uh, but we've had those. And I mean, you know, the states in question, we've seen Minnesota, Arizona, California do it. I saw Idaho add one, as I recall, this year. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of states push this thing in. In addition to the whole slew of states we had that were already there as of last November. So there are a number of states. Now, Still not, I think we're still slightly less than half of the states with an income tax, but I think it's a matter of time unless the SALT cap is repealed for the other states to go along because in virtually every state that it passed this year, even though we generally have a very divided uh, country, very partisan, and usually things are going through legislatures on you know party line votes, especially on tax issues, these are passing legislatures virtually unanimously. You know, red, blue, they all get together, one big happy family to push these through. So let's go over how they work. So, all right, for our example here, I want to posit a taxpayer that would owe generally $16,000 of state tax for the activities for the year. He's got a pass-through activity and he's got some other income. He has some deductions, itemized deductions, etc., on the state 16000 now, if, if we just take the pass-through income off, that tax goes down by 9000 So 7000 of the tax relates to his non-pass-through activities, and 9000 is the add-on effect of the pass-through coming to him. He also has $5,000 of real estate taxes on his personally used properties, you know, his residence, maybe a second residence, but it's all personal real estate taxes. His company, the pass-through income, we're going to make this a single, a one shareholder S corporation just for simplicity. That S corporation, after paying him a reasonable salary, is going to be able to pass out to him $200,000 of income. So that's where we stand. We'll assume the state income tax at the top marginal rate is 4.5%. So therefore, two hundred thousand for net percent that gives us that nine thousand dollars that relates to the pass-through entity. Okay. Well, let's talk about the difference between an entity-level tax and somebody who does not have an entity-level income tax. And if you're looking at the video version of this, the slide should be up for you. That shows this calculation. If we don't have an entity-level income tax, then the S-Corporation is going to show $200,000 net on page one from trade or business. Let's assume we have no non-separately stated items. So this is just going to come straight to the K-1 as 200000 
And this taxpayer, let's for simplicity just tax this at 37%. We'll assume for whatever reason it does not qualify for 199 cap A. And, you know, as well, it doesn't have net, it's not net investment income. So it's just straight up top rate, 37%. We'd pay $74,000 on that 200 grand. However, if the state has adopted an entity level pass through income tax that allows the pass through entity to elect to pay a tax of 4.5% on its income that will pass through to the equity holder, then that small business would pay, or the basically the S corporation, would pay a $9,000 tax at the entity level. Under notice 2020-75, we would be able to take that as a tax related to the business, reducing our flow through income to $191,000. 37% of that would be $70,670, giving us a net tax difference of $3,330, on that pass-through income change by having the tax. Now you might say, okay, great, but that $9,000 is state and local income taxes, right? And you kind of understand we're going to get a credit for that, or we're not going to pay tax on the 200 grand anyway. So bottom line, you know, aren't we really going to lose 9,000 on Schedule A? Answer is, Yes and no, and the practical answer is no, we're not losing anything. Let's take a look at the facts, what's happening here. So on the taxpayer's personal return, let's assume we do not make the election. The taxpayer would have $16,000 of taxes. I'm going to assume, for purposes of simplicity, that our taxpayer was very good at getting us information right up to the last second. And so by the end of 2021, we have paid in exactly what he would owe in taxes. And we do that every year. So there was no tax due, no refund from the prior year. So, hey, it's all good. So we'd have $16,000 in taxes paid to the state. Now, if we made the election, and let's assume this is a credit state, not an exclusion state, because most states are a credit state, he would still compute a $16,000 tax. In most states, he's going to add back any amounts that were paid to the state. That's just going to be an add back, so he'll still pay tax on 200 grand on his individual return. However, after he's computed that tax, he will get a $9,000 tax credit, his share of the pass-through tax that was paid at the entity level. That means he will only write a check to the state for $7,000. Now, in reality, he didn't really save a dollar of tax in terms of going to the state. Yes, he got away with writing only a $7,000 check, but his S corporation he holds 100% of wrote a $9,000 check as well. His net worth went down by sixteen grand. looking at this alone. There's no question. But now, remember, we have a drop in income above the line. And it turns out we're going to have no impact on Schedule A in terms of the total amount deducted. Because on his return, on Schedule A, if we don't have the elective income tax, 16000 would be paid. He also has 5000 real estate taxes. That's total state and local taxes of 21000 If we do have the electing income tax, state taxes of 7000 real estate taxes of 5000 well, yeah, we're 9000 short there. However, remember, ever since TCJA, the law says, and you look at Schedule A, the line before that will say, well, take the lesser of that number, 12000 or 21000 whichever one of those numbers was coming down your return, or ten grand. Because both are more than ten grand, we are going to get a ten grand deduction only on Schedule A regardless of whether we have the entity-level election in play or we don't. And what that means is that we're not changing itemized deductions. So that $3,330 tax savings becomes real. That's actual cash in the pocket. And remember, the state is still sitting on the same money they would have gotten without enacting this rule. So it's a no-lose situation for the state. The taxpayer makes money. 
anybody figured out why legislators like these provisions? It's a win-win. You know, in essence, they, they don't, in essence, they get to give out a tax cut without negatively impacting revenues to the state. That's why this has become a no-brainer in terms of popularity. However, there are problems. Probably the biggest single problem is, as always is true with states, no two of these taxes are exactly the same. They share certain similarities. In a rough, you know, 90,000-foot level, shall we say, or 40,000 foot. Let's keep it down where the airplanes really are. Things that aren't big military things or whatever Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are flying these days are up at. Even at 40,000 feet, yeah, they're, they, they sound similar. And the only real major difference would be if I was looking at the Wisconsin-style exclusion versus the majority of states tax credit. But at the end of the day, they work very similarly. But the details will drive you batty. And we have a lot of odd little details that are in play. First key detail was the original tax Connecticut passed was mandatory. Every pastor in the state of Connecticut, S Corporation and Partnership, has to pay this tax. Now, Connecticut did that not because they just want to be nasty, but they did it because, remember, the IRS is going to threaten to go after them. The Connecticut legislature was concerned that if they made it elective, the IRS would argue that that's not really a tax. You can't elect to pay a tax. A tax is a mandate. So they made it mandatory because they were concerned that if they made it elective, that would make it simpler for the IRS to kill off the program. However, no state since Connecticut has made it mandatory. In every other state, if you're not in Connecticut and your state has one of these, at least as of right now, it is elective. So it's going to be a choice. Now, that complicates matters because, see, in, in Connecticut, there's like there's no thinking at this point, right? You just do it. You have to do it because it's a requirement. But if you're in New Jersey, if you're in Wisconsin, if you're in Arkansas, if you're in California, if you are in, you know, Oklahoma, you're in Idaho, right? You're in Minnesota, Illinois, you're in any of these states, you've got to make a decision. Will your pass-throughs go for this or will they not? And while it seems a no-brainer, it becomes much tougher, as we'll discuss, if any of the equity holders don't are not residents of the state in question. That's when things get messy very quick. There are the majority of states give a tax credit. That is, you know, like I said, in my example, we paid $9,000. At the S-Corp level, the S-Corporation passed out a $9,000 credit to the shareholder. In a few states, it would be less than $9,000, but still enough of a credit that you would be, you know, in essence, the state decided, well, we might as well take a cut of the savings. So instead of saving $3,330, maybe we're only going to let you save $2,700, and we'll take a cut for the rest. And so we'll see things like that in a few states. In fact, that is what Massachusetts is fighting over currently. Uh, the legislature uh, passed one that gave full credit or that gave a partial credit. So they kept some of the money. The governor thinks they should give full credit for that amount. So my my thoughts are eventually they'll work out some compromise there and they'll they'll get one as well. There are a few states that have an exclusion. This is the key one is Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin, what happens there is the entity elects to have themselves be taxed as if they were a C corporation for state purposes, which means that, in essence, the income from that pass-through is removed from the tax return when computing the Wisconsin personal income tax. Because, again, it's like a C corporation that pays an entity-level tax. Now, that like a C only works for that. There doesn't really have, hurt you the same way on sale and a few other issues. So it, it's kind of an odd kind of C corporation issue. But that accomplishes it by getting an exclusion. Most states, though, use the tax credit routine. The tax credit routine is a lot easier to dial in so that you have something that has no impact on the on the state's budget, either positive or negative. And generally, they like it to have no impact. Why? If it turns out this raises money 
it's easy for an opponent to run against you for having raised taxes. If it ends up reducing money, then you have, you know, pulled off something that you have to start cutting programs. So it's a little more complicated with the exclusion to make that work. With the credit, it's pretty easy to have it to a large extent self-correct. It just automates because, let's be honest, the real tax is being computed on the individual return. We're, getting, we're just getting part of it paid by the company and we're getting a credit. Now, I realize when I say that, it sounds like it's a workaround and it should be thrown out. But the IRS has already conceded that, nope, we're not going to say that. And I don't think they can. As I said, I think what they've found is what they would have said is, well, the bad thing is that it's, it's elective and there's a credit. Well, then we just make it mandatory and do it like Wisconsin. And then the IRS really have had no way to shut them down. And I think that's what they realized, that it would have been a game of whack-a-mole. And eventually they would have had to conclude that a Wisconsin, a mandatory Wisconsin system or something similar, certain structures were okay. And so by the end of the day, you know, you lose on that. It's kind of the same thing that got us to check the box rules on LLCs. The IRS tried to play whack-a-mole on LLCs being corporations, depending upon exactly which features they had. And at the end of the day, they finally gave up. And I think the similar thing happens here. There are some states for the credit one. Now, this is a weird one because we're seeing it drift away from refundable, it appears. But a lot of states say the credit's refundable. So let's say my overall state income tax was only $4,000. You know, I had lots of state tax credits and I had other issues. But again, but it paid $9,000 because at the S level, 4.5% of $200,000 was $9,000. Well, in many states, I could get a refund of the excess. However, what's happened more recently, and specifically in Arizona and California, is that that credit only becomes a carryover, and a carryover that has a specific life. In the Arizona and California examples, it's five years. Now, that may be a problem, because if you have somebody who consistently is going to have an individual tax that is less than the tax, that they would owe on the pass-through, they're going to end up having paid extra tax by doing this because after five years, that's going to just drift off and never be recovered. Now, obviously, you can elect some years and not others because each of these states allow a year-by-year election. So you could solve it that way, but you ought to worry about this. The refundable credit states are a lot easier to deal with. The non-refundable credit states, you just got to make sure that none of your partners, none of your, none of your shareholders are going to have a problem with not being able to absorb the entire credit. And that also could be a problem, let's say, like I can think of an obvious example. If almost all the return, all the income on the return was, let's say, income flowing through from a partnership. So we have a partner who really has no investments. You know, it's an operating partnership. He's there working. So all the income's coming through the partnership income. Uh, he's going to have at least the standard deduction. So there's going to be at least something like that shielding the amount that he'll pay state income taxes on, on the individual return, which means that if even if it's a flat rate and we charge the flat rate, we're still going to end up with too much in there and the carryover could become a problem. And similar problem if you have a, you know, progressive rate structure and you got partners in the lower brackets could cause you a similar problem. We have some differences here about how many, how, how this works now. Initially, this covered the entire partnership and it didn't matter if some of the partners were corporations who didn't care. C-Corps didn't care because C-Corporations, you know, they get to deduct their state income taxes in full. That's the way the TCJA worked. But many of these, again, concerned that the IRS would see it as not an entity level tax if they didn't apply it to everybody's distributions, applied it to everyone. And that meant that partnerships that had corporate partners or maybe they had uh, partnership partners would opt out because either it couldn't be recovered or it got extraordinarily messy. So they gave up and they, they couldn't elect. Well, what's happened now is we're beginning to see some states say, and I mean, we're seeing this a lot more, that the partnership res corp only play, pays this entity level tax on amounts that would flow out to individuals, trusts, and estates.
So if you have, let's say, a corp, a C corp partner, uh, it, we wouldn't, we would exclude that from our computation of how much we're going to pay the 4.5% tax on. In my example, it's also questionable, and it's really been a bit of a nightmare in New Jersey specifically. I've been watching. Uh, what if some of the members of the partnerships are themselves partnerships? And how do you handle that? You know, if there's been an entity level tax paid at the first partnership, you know, what happens to the second partnership? And can it recover that tax? Or can it pass it on to its partners who would actually use it? And that's become insanely messy. And obviously, if some of the partners of the subsidiary partnership of corporations, they're also a bit messed on that. So that's the reason why we've been excluding those now in the newer ones. But that can all, you know, the idea is the partnership that has only individual partners is the one to make the election. But finally, Arizona and California added a new wrinkle, at least not one I remember seeing in the other state yet, uh, where the individual, the individual equity holders can say, don't touch my interest. Don't don't have this big come out on my interest. Now, on a partnership, you could write your agreement so that we can go ahead and make sure the deduction only appears on the partners who have not opted out. But on an S corporation, if some of the S corp shareholders opt out, we're still going to find that we're going to spread that deduction across everybody. Right. And the, the other catch, though, is on liquidation. Those shareholders that didn't have the tax withheld on their interest are going to get their distribution still reduced by their portion of those taxes because, again, per share per day as a corporation is the way it works. So that will complicate the S side of the equation um, if not everybody wants in. And why would some not want in? There are valid reasons why some partners may not want to do this. And we'll talk about that. Now, generally for these programs, the elections have to be made by the due date, including extensions of the pass-through entity return. Then also, generally, the pass-through entity return owes estimated taxes and will be penalized if it hasn't paid them timely. That creates another problem because, remember, we normally are allowed to make this election all the way through the due date of the return. But once we elect, we should then have been paying estimates back over a year back, or at least, let's say, a year back normally. We should have been paying estimated tax payments in. But we didn't know if we were going to elect or not. And so there's one problem is you get estimated tax payments on the wrong return or on a return that wouldn't be filed. You might have estimated tax payments for the pass-through entity, but you're not going to actually have a pass-through entity tax election this year. And if that's a separate form, then how do we get that refund? The other problem is if we decide at the last minute, yes, we're doing it. Now the problem is the estimates have been paid by the individuals. The pass-through entity did not pay any of them. Therefore, we can end up getting a penalty and having to come up with more tax money on the tax deadline. While we're also seeing each individual members, you know, get a tax refund because they're overpaid because of the way that we did the estimates. So that's a complication we have to deal with. The practical answer is we'd like to know early in the year if we're going to make the election we file the return and act accordingly. So this is an action you need to get together with people as early as you can. Now, for those that pass this year that are effective this year, in some but not all cases, there will be a waiver of some sort of the estimates for this year. Uh, so it won't be a problem this first year because, you know, if they didn't sign into law until July, you there was no way you could have paid the first few est the first two estimates because there was no such tax. So, you know, check your local law if that happened as to how it's going to work on the estimates. The other issue is it covers partnerships and S corporations, but not proprietorships. The notice itself is very clear that it is only partnerships and S corporations it's talking about. A sole proprietorship, even if operating a single member LLC, apparently doesn't qualify for this program, at least not the way the IRS notice was written. A big problem we have is the credit for taxes paid to other states, most particularly if you have out-of-state partners. Because the problem is 
the tax is being paid. It's an entity-level tax on the partnership or S-corporation. It is not a tax being levied on the individual. That's effectively how we get it to qualify. But because of that, let, let's posit a situation where I have a taxpayer who is in a state without this sort of tax. And they are like a 5% interest holder in a New Jersey partnership. The partnership, all other partners in New Jersey partnerships live in New Jersey. All of its activities are in New Jersey. So the other 95% interest holders all say, yep, we're making the election to pay what is in New Jersey. Uh, you know, the business alternative income tax or the bait tax, you'll hear it. Yeah, it's a bait tax. No, it's not anything about fishing. So the bait. And the catch is, okay, that's all great. As my example showed, let's say that was the example. You'd have paid your $9,000. And yes, your $9,000 you would have owed New Jersey goes off of your New Jersey individual return, the non-resident return you're filing. But the problem is your resident state is saying, you didn't pay any tax in New Jersey because you didn't. But your resident state is still going to tax that, not that pass-through income. And you're going to get a zero credit for the 9000 let's say you paid New Jersey, and you'll end up having to pay, if the rates were the same, another $9,000 to the state you live in. Because both states will fully tax all the income with no credit because you elect it. And while some people think, oh, no, 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 you have to get the credit, the Supreme Court won't stand for it. A lot of commentators think they will because, remember, this is an elective tax. The way you would solve the problem is the New Jersey partnership just doesn't do this. But if they don't do it, the 95% interest holders in New Jersey are the ones that lose out. Those 95% holders are likely to say, tough luck, you live in, you know, whatever state you live in, tough luck, that's great, you shouldn't live there, and go ahead and still claim the benefit for themselves and leave you hanging out to dry. Okay. Now, some the question here will be looking at state statutes. Some revenue departments might allow it saying it's kind of like a composite return. And we've kind of allowed maybe the composite return credit for taxes paid. So maybe they'll look at it that way, or maybe they won't. And the interesting aside is that only a few states with the credits have added explicit provisions in their code for dealing with getting that credit for the amount of, you know, this type of tax paid to another state that is paid at the entity level. So we have that, like New Jersey has that, I know, a couple of others do too, and I know Arizona, when their law went in, they have a similar provision uh, almost, actually, almost in many ways identical to New Jersey one that says, yeah, you know, the Revenue Department will identify equivalent taxes in other states and you'll get a credit for it against your state income tax. So that'll be here. So it's going to be really important on the state level for your equity holders to understand the impact both. Are we going to have too much credit for some equity holders and a carryover state risk losing it eventually? Or... Are some of our equity holders not resident in our state? And if they're not, are they going to end up having to pay a tax to two different states on the same income with no credit? So those are things we'll be looking at and trying to understand to make this go. Now, a couple of cat one caveat here. Remember, the IRS told us only they were going to issue regulations. And the IRS issued this notice based on the laws that were in place in early November of 2020. Since then, the states have gotten a bit more creative, added exceptions, left out classes of partners from the tax, and even allowed partners and escort and shareholders to say, don't touch my share, don't do this on my part. So that becomes virtually an individual partner or escort shareholder election. And the question we're going to have to ask is, when these regs come out, will the IRS say, oh, that that's fine, We'll let it go, or will they say that's a step too far? By letting the individual make this call, you've gone beyond what we really want to let go. And the question also becomes are there any limits? You know, where would the IRS draw the line and say this goes too far? As it stands right now, we don't know. Now, 
like I said, I'm not going through each state's credit because they are all different. They all have their own quirks. And you really need to get into your state statute to take a look at it, try to figure out what's going on. Um, I would certainly say that in most states, look for your state CPA societies probably will be offering resources and state revenue departments that are meant to explain these programs and how they work. So you want to take a look at that, but realize they're a bit more complicated and messier than you might think. And I know that from having watched New Jersey Society and watched all the fun they've had trying to figure out the bait. Now, I understand that one of the problems there was until November of last year, everybody was convinced that it didn't work. So most people are saying they weren't going to elect it. And then suddenly, you know, late in the year, we get a 180 where the Revenue Department now suddenly realizes that this is really going to happen and people are going to really file this form. And all of the professionals are scrambling, trying to figure out how it works. So be aware of that. It's been kind of interesting to follow. But yes, you want to take whatever courses you've got as you learn that. And probably some courses at first, if they've just enacted, you want to take a course to learn about how it works. But then keep up and a few months later take it because what's going to happen in almost all these states is the revenue departments will start issuing some more guidance and you'll have to keep up with that as they start basically fleshing out how these taxes will actually work in your state and at the same time you have to have discussions with your pass-through and with your pass-through entities to figure out if we're going to do this especially if the tax option is for 21 and just passed you really got to kind of figure out, do we plan to do this or not, and have that discussion, understanding that the discussion may change if we get additional guidance, which we almost certainly will. But this has become such a big mess and definitely becomes something that every time it happens, I see the same questions arise. That I just think you kind of got to understand the basics. Even if your state hasn't done it yet, unless we're talking about Texas, Washington, Nevada, South Dakota, states with no income tax, if your state hasn't done it, I suspect within a year or two they're going to do it absent the salt cap being repealed at the federal level, which if I had to bet, I say it won't be just because of the high cost involved that they'll trade off and get something else instead of clearing the salt cap, or at least instead of clearing it entirely. So be ready for this. This has been Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of August the 23rd, 2021. Again, brought to you every week by your State Society of CPAs and Capital Financial Education. Uh, we do plan to, like I said, come back next week. Hopefully, they'll do something in the next week, so we'll have something to talk about. And we'll talk about doing that sort of thing. I do follow those discussions on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Washington, and Illinois. And I also am you know, keeping an eye on the Idaho discussions when anything comes up there. So if you're a member of those societies, you can check in there. Otherwise, check back in with us next week here when we give you a run-through of the latest developments here in the area of current federal tax developments. <music>